Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. The radio and TV version of the show air in over 12 states. This includes both coasts and Silicon Valley. The show also airs in the UK, Caribbean, and Australia. For full show times, plus past episodes of the TV and radio show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. We just launched a free online community to connect past guests, listeners, and others. This community will allow you to network, chat on Slack, or get help with anything else, and a lot more. If you're interested in joining the community, buying some merch, sponsoring the show, or signing up for the newsletter, please go to buildingthefutureshow.com. I want to invite all of you in the Building the Future community to join me at SUPEX, the Startup Expo in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, this July 26th, where I'll be the MC. SUPEX is one of the largest and best startup conferences in the U.S. and the official gathering of the Building the Future community this summer. SUPEX has cutting-edge content, a cool startup competition, and a half-day forum this year called Hashtag Women for Women, the largest gathering in the U.S. in 2018 of angel groups, seed funds, and BC funds focused on female founders and female entrepreneurs. For more information, visit www.sup-x.org. I hope to see all my Building the Future friends there. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Steve Wells. He's a global futurist, keynote speaker, and the COO of Fast Future. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks very much indeed, Kevin. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I'm always kind of fascinated by kind of, well, the future, I I, I guess. Um, But maybe before we get into all that kind of fun stuff, Let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Yeah, I, I grew up in uh, East Kent in okay. England, around about 70 miles from London, uh, quite close to the beach. Nice. Um, I, I went to school there. Uh, when I started work, I started work around about 10, 15 miles away from uh, from where I lived. Okay. Um, after that, the, uh, I actually worked for um, a UK affiliate of an American company, Pfizer. Sure. Uh, and most of my early career was in, uh, was in finance. Okay. So kind of very structured kind of role, um, uh, looking to almost enforce rules, if, if you know what I mean, because accountants are quite often the policemen inside, uh, sure. um, inside big companies. Um, the, the company at the time then moved the operation uh, around about 90 miles to uh, to a new site. So I actually moved away from um, East Kent all the way to West Kent, which was about 60 miles away. Okay. And, uh, and that's where that's where I am now. Um, but it, it, what was what I think was really interesting, it, it was experiences after that move in the way that Pfizer started to develop and evolve that started to increase my interest in, in futures. And, and, and this is the bit that really starts to uh, um, starts to lay out what's happened to me since. So, so part of the role that I had at, at Pfizer was leading the strategic planning process. Now, there's, there's kind of a, there's a bit of an oxymoron there, really. I think when you work in strategy for an affiliate organisation of a global entity then one of the things that you have to understand is what is it that you have strategic control over and what is it that they do in headquarters that they just tell you to do and you need to get really good at doing as you're told. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and frankly, we kind of struggled with that for a while. Okay. Um, but, but, but what was really fascinating was that when we actually understood that what we had strategic control over was how we interacted with our customers um, and how we developed our talent, that gave us some context, I think, for thinking about, so how do we look at what happens in the external environment 
into the future what are the potential futures we might see and how might they impact what we do with our talent and how we as a business develop services that allow us to interact with our customers Interesting. And it was through part of that that I started to get involved more and more in futures work. Um, uh, we had a guy into the organization called Rohit Tulwar um, who helped us develop a scenario planning exercise. We put the senior um, leaders of the organization through that exercise, develop a bunch of really interesting scenarios that we made kind of mock-up economist-type magazines from. Interesting. Um, and, 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 that, and that really resonated with me. I was just totally captivated by the idea that you can look at some trends, you can play those trends out into the future, you can create a number of different story titles and then put richness into, the t into those stories by looking at the number of the different of the, of the factors that we've identified. What you can then do with those stories is apply those to your existing strategies and think about how new strategies could potentially evolve given those different potential outcomes. Okay. And for me, the, 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 the real thing that I take from that point into everything that I do now is that futures work is not really about giving us a degree of comfort about one particular preferred future, but it's actually about allowing us, giving ourselves permission to develop robust, resilient, broad strategies that allow us to be flexible as we move our organizations into the future. Because the only thing we know for sure is what's happened. Sure. We don't know for sure, no matter what degree of, of uh, sophistication we put into our, um, into our projection and forecasting techniques, we don't know what's going to happen into the future. So how do we build flexibility and resilience into our organizations in order that we can cope with uncertainty and complexity in the future? And, and that's the piece that really interests me. That, that's what gets me up in the morning. Interesting. No, I, I think that's fascinating. Kind of, but before we maybe kind of continue, I, I think what for people that may probably have heard the term kind of futurist, what exactly does that mean or what does that mean to you? Well, what it means to me is that I have a great interest in the future. Now, I know that sounds you know blindingly obvious, okay. um, but it's not just about the near future, potentially. It's not just about one future. So it's about looking to see what are the signals that we're seeing at the moment that take us toward the future. Now, some of those can be reasonably certain trends. Others can be really weak signals. And, and we kind of try to bring those together to create a sense of how different aspects of the future may actually evolve. And I think what's critically important is that the language that we use, certainly within Fast Future, is not uh, things will develop, but things might develop, things could develop. Okay. There's a chance that we might see these kind of things. And it goes back to what I said just now. You know, We don't know the future. We don't predict the future. What we do is suggest different potential futures so that people get a sense of the variability that's in the future, uh, the complex nature of the future, the uncertain nature of the future. Because as futurists, I think we help people make sense of that. I think the other thing that we do as futurists as well is we help people draw connections between different disparate futures and the different disparate factors that drive some of those futures out. So a really good example of, of that maybe is uh, I'm taking part over the weekend in an event 
talking about universal basic income. Okay. So if we think about universal basic income, the basic premise here is that uh, there will be such a high degree of automation that we don't have the number of jobs that we do today. So how might that affect society? How might that affect the way that we live? So one of the ideas is that everyone has a basic income in order to survive, in order to live, in order to continue to play a full and proper part in society. Okay. Now that sounds a great idea, but then we start to think, so what are the implications of that? Do we mean universal basic income in just in terms of cash, or do we start to introduce different services? What might those services be? Maybe it's free learning and education, because the one thing we know is as well as jobs disappearing from the economy, new jobs will come in as new technologies start to deliver the opportunity for us to create new businesses, to create new business sectors, to create new business models. Totally. Yep. So re retraining could be a really significant element of that. But if we've got these kind of basic needs that we have, do we just give people cash or do we provide access to other services? Do we provide free access to utilities? Do we provide access to free transport? Do we provide access to free broadband? Um, so all of a sudden, the, the potential to provide appropriate basic needs broadens from just a giving people a, a, a whole chunk of cash to help them live, to providing a range of services that help them live. That then begins to question, so how are those funded? Sure. And the way that most of those would be funded would presumably be through the public sector. How do we fund the public sector? Through taxation. How do we need to change the way we, we raise taxation to fund those needs? But how do we then tax the people and the organizations that we currently tax in a fairer way to risk, to um, acknowledge what we need to do to create a fairer society if we don't have jobs for everyone? Do we start to for example, penalize the use of robotics compared to those organizations that focus very much on employing people. Do we have an expectation that companies should provide funding for support for startups in new business sectors? So, you know, all of a sudden, these kind of tentacles come out from the, from the central topic that we started with. So is universal basic income a good idea to how fundamentally different it could potentially change the lives of everyone um, involved in, 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 in that particular, in that particular example. Then you start to say, well, is something like universal basic income and that funding model sustainable at a national level? What happens if in doing that we have to increase taxation in the UK to the extent that UK is not an attractive place for multinationals to do business? How do we then compete as a nation with the rest of the world that aren't necessarily looking at uh, universal basic income? And if part of universal basic income is ac access to healthcare, um, at zero cost to the to the individual, how does that challenge the existing U.S. system? Totally, yeah. <laughs> so you know, so there are lots of really interesting connections that 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 I think futurists are pretty good at starting to form to help people make sense not just of the issue that we started with, but also to understand the nature of the complexity and uncertainty that surrounds them. No, I I think that's fascinating to me. I'm I'm actually quite interested. To, about kind of that whole thing of kind of a, a base income for for kind of everybody. I also wonder if it's kind of needed, if that like at some point, like you mentioned, um, new technologies will come out that everybody will be working. I, I Obviously, I don't know, right? Like we, nobody really has an idea. I, I think that at some point we're going to have some sort of basic income maybe, but I don't know if we'll necessarily need it. I, I don't know, right? I'm kind of on the fence, right? So 
it, and, 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 and that I don't know is the absolute critical piece okay. because at the moment we see uh, policy and strategy at the national level predicated on uh, what I would say is a false assumption of uh, security around the status quo. Um, and, I'll, and I'll use the example of UK Prime Minister Theresa May's uh, speech at Davos recently. Okay. So what she basically said was, uh, technology is going to change the way we live our lives. So we need to think about new ways, uh, new socially responsible ways for behaving, for example, on social media and the way that we use social media. Sure. The other thing that we need to acknowledge is that opportunities in these new technologies need to be addressed by a series of um, social system changes in, in the country. So in the UK, we want to become uh, a center of AI excellence. Okay. Uh, I think there's a bit of competition out there to do that, but you know that's that that's the basic policy idea what we'll do to underpin that um, is we'll create uh, a, a vibrant startup type economy we'll um, invest in training we'll invest in education and the, as the global economy grows and as ai plays a significant part in that economic growth the uk will share in that worldwide wealth now that, of course, is, a, is based on the assumption that what we see as current trends in economic change is going to happen into the future. Then we say, what if? Sure. So what if that doesn't happen? What if, um, for example, 3D printing makes everything so cheap to produce that the prices fall, that um, – manufacturing can be done on a much more local level than it is now. Um, what if there are issues around globalization that fall apart? What if nationalization really takes hold around the world? You know, there are all these kind of potentially interesting macro drivers that could come to, uh, to really challenge this notion about ongoing economic growth. Sure. So what we don't see going back as well to this conversation that we had about universal basic income if all these jobs are lost to automation what we don't see is what if thinking now what if thinking may be going on underneath the, the kind of the, the public pronouncements about what might happen into the future how we might use technology how technology will be an enabler to ongoing economic growth but what if that doesn't happen what if we need universal basic income what's the process by which we start to think about entitlement what, where's the thinking where we start to think about how might we transition services that are currently available through private sector providers even in the uk back into the public sector so that we can start to maybe strip back some of the costs that at the moment is disappearing in terms of uh, um of, of dividends and uh, you know and and, and and profit, you know, and the motive of making profit in order that we can create sensible service levels for a universal basic income type world. And actually, do we mean anyway universal basic income for all? Or do we want to use some of this increasingly sophisticated AI technology to take a slightly different view on entitlement? Sure. So, you know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of things, I think, around uncertainty that we don't necessarily see when we hear governments talking about uh, how economics may evolve and develop into the future. Sure. So, no, I, I think I'm totally fascinated by it. But I, I'm curious to know what exactly is Fast Future Publishing? And you've written some books kind of um, – with Fast Future, what exactly is Fast Future? And, and let's cover some of the books that you've written and some of the upcoming books. Yeah, I'd love to. So Fast Future 
uh, is uh, a UK company, although we, we have people uh, based in the US as well. Very cool. We, we basically do three things. Um, the first thing we do, is, as, you, as you've mentioned a couple of times, is uh, we publish books specifically about the future. Okay. Uh, and we currently have four books on, on the market. The first one um, was called The Future of Business. The second one is called uh, Technology versus Humanity. Uh, that's uh, written by a German author called Gert Leonard. And it's, ma- it's basically his manifesto about how do we protect the world from the march of the machines and, and the march of technology. Um, then our last two books, one is called Beyond Genuine Stupidity, uh, which is about ensuring AI serves humanity. Uh, and the most recent one is called The Future Reinvented, which is about reimagining life, society and, and, uh, and business. Now, the, the first book is, a, is, a, is, is basically the story of Fast Future, because the way that came about was, uh, you remember a little while ago, I mentioned this guy, Rohit Talwar. He yeah. came in when I was working at Pfizer to help us with, uh, with some scenario work. Well, I always kept contact with uh, with Rohit for a number of years afterwards. And, and after I'd left Pfizer, you know, we were kind of chatting and he, he said to me, I've got a really good idea for a book. I want to write a book with uh, 25 or 30 contributors from around the world talking about different domains of the future that really interest them. Okay, um, but what I want to do is publish it in a slightly different way. I don't want to uh, get into kind of the normal publishing model. And what made us say that was when we spoke to publishers about how long it might take to bring a book like that to market, they told us 18 to 24 months. And we thought, you know, as futurists, by the time we take our ideas to market 24 months after we've written them down, they're probably old ideas. Totally, yeah. So we, we started to uh, use our network to try to get out there, to try to call people up for content, um, uh, to get their enthusiasm and their interest in, in, in contributing to the book. Um, we ended up initially with 90 potential contributions, but wow. we, we managed to get that down to 60. So rather than the 25 to 30, we had a book that was more than double the size. So we had 60 contributors, 60 chapters uh, from, I think it's 21 or 22 different countries around the world. That's very cool. Now, we, we, we edited that book in-house. Um, we worked with a number of different uh, production partners in order to bring the book to market. But from concept to publication happened in 19 weeks. Wow. That's so, really fast, actually. That is uh, – it, it was very fast. <laughs> um, we've tried to do that again. We've not quite made it, but but we've been close. But the, the, the thing that we did was we really kind of challenged, I think – uh, traditional notions about different process parts of, of the publishing process. Um, so we um, we looked very hard about at the uh, at the editing process, at editorial cycles. We looked very hard about the way that we engage team members into that editorial process. Uh, we used uh, social media very extensively. No surprise there, I suppose. Sure. Um, ab- ab- about um, promoting what we were trying to do. Uh, we used our own website in order to sell the book. Uh, we we list on Amazon as well. So, you know, we, we, we brought the book to market in uh, a different way, but then a same, albeit a same modern way, if you like, think, thinking about Amazon. Sure. So that kind of told us quite a lot about the interest um, in thinking about futures and in writing about futures. The other thing that uh, that we, we, we did as a result of that 
was continue to provide keynote speeches for both client events, for private client organizations, companies, for example. This is something particularly that Rohit had done in the past. And we started to realize that actually there was a really strong relationship between content from the book and the books themselves and speaking opportunities, which became and is now the largest part of our business. Interesting. The other thing that we did, both did before, uh, and we continue to do now, again, as a result of the research that we undertake in order to support both the speaking and, and the book development, is strategic consultancy. A lot of that strategic consultancy is very much focused around what is it that we're identifying and seeing from current trends to weak signals within a particular business sector. How can we help you within your business make sense of that? Can we possibly develop a workshop around engaging um, your colleagues within the business to make sense of this content so that they may build more resilient and more flexible strategies given the uncertain complex nature of the future? So you begin to see how all these things tie together. So sure. we have these three threads to our business right now. Uh, so we have the publishing, we have the uh, keynote speaking, and we have the strategic consultancy. Interesting. So I'm, I'm curious, though, I, I think this kind of covers kind of a bit deeper into what we've already been talking about. And, and you're, you guys have been writing about this stuff and talking about it in, in your keynotes is do we let kind of people or, or the general public or experts kind of decide how some of this technology should be used? Because like even something as simple as kind of, you know, Apple's Siri and Google has Google, uh, Google Assistant and Alexa from Amazon. And, you know, there's a couple others. Samsung has their own. Like we're, we're almost letting AI into our lives. Some people understand that and some people I think don't don't really understand it. Some people don't care. I think some people are kind of freaked out by it. But like, in your opinion, um, how much should we kind of let maybe the general public or should we leave it to experts? Or should we kind of have a bit of both kind of decide how AI can kind of become part of society? I, I, I think it's all of the above. Um, one okay. of the things that I think has been really interesting about artificial intelligence as a technology is how it's really burst into the public consciousness. Okay. Uh, so, you know, and I'm talking from a UK perspective here. If we look at how often stories about new technologies and specifically about artificial intelligence are featured in the lay media, then we've seen an absolute explosion over the last 18 months to two years sure. from daily newspapers, from the broadsheets, the tabloids, news websites, uh, the BBC, both in terms of the BBC website, but also on their news programs. I've been on the BBC uh, TV and radio talking about the potential impact on jobs and work uh, of artificial intelligence. So the idea that artificial intelligence as a way to automate work is really come into the public consciousness. At the moment, I think it's very much there as a threat to jobs and as a threat to work rather than an enabler for us to do different work and to change the value of work that we do. But I certainly think that as a um, as a new technology, AI has has really emerged onto the public consciousness in the UK. Funnily enough, I mean, I, my mum talks about it to her to her friends as well. So she's got her friends talking about artificial intelligence and, it, and its potential. Um, and, and and my mum and her friends are kind of um, seventy and eighty year olds. So you know, you you you. It, 
it's it it is coming into the public consciousness and which i think has to be a good thing because we do need a very open and public debate about how these technologies are used at the moment we're i suppose just on the cusp between reasonably harmless artificial intelligence some may argue we've already gone beyond the cusp sure. and artificial intelligence that can really be used for um, quite deceptive means Sure. So I guess if we think about some of the controversies around um, how our personal data is used by artificial intelligence, if we think about some of the controversy about how much from uh, the likes of um, uh, the, the Amazon Echo devices, for example, are actually taken back and, uh, and used by, by the tech companies. If we look at some of the developments that are ongoing in the way that we might be able to bring different data strands together to make different assumptions, uh, to provide different services, uh, some of that could be used for good other of it not necessarily quite so good um, we've only got to look at how artificial intelligence can be used by foreign agencies um, uh, to uh, to uh, uh, rage cyber warfare um, on different yeah, different countries so you know we need to have this public debate about how we use uh, these new technologies and if we look at how other new technologies are starting to emerge beyond artificial intelligence so things like brain computer interface things like nanotechnology um, things like uh, 4d printing um, you know there are a number of different technologies that are starting to emerge that could have such a radical um, impact on the way we we live and the way that we work we just need to think about what do we want them to do what do we want to be able to do with them what is our choice as a society because unless we do something then the profit then the profit motive remains the primary driver for bringing some of these things to market that and i suppose military applications sure. but neither neither of those motives are necessarily good for society what we actually need to think about is what decisions do we want to make as a society that allows tech companies to continue to bring these technologies into the marketplace? But then also, where's the off button for the artificially intelligent robot so that we can make sure that the robots don't start taking all of our decisions and that we're able to make those decisions? So just because we can develop technology for a particular means doesn't mean we should do and certainly doesn't mean that we should do without the appropriate controls that pay attention to society's needs and not just the needs of the tech companies if we allow the tech companies to do that then potentially i'm not saying they would sure. but potentially they're into then we're into some of the kind of dystopian perspectives on the future that are technology driven that uh, we maybe see in science fiction films and movies yeah, no, that's that's actually quite fascinating um, to me anyway. And I think like I think Apple was kind of the first one kind of with Siri that would seem to be kind of the most popular one. And I think recently um, I would probably argue the Amazon Echo and also kind of the Google Home Mini. I, I know like my even my wife's parents, uh, we got them a Google Home Mini because they wanted one because we had one and they were kind of fascinated by they could just like ask this little thing questions right and yep. if you know them they are not tech savvy people at all and i don't mean it mean it's just like nope. they they're just i and i was absolutely shocked that they wanted one and i was just like wow if if somebody like that 
and like their friends are starting to buy them now and you know they're farmers right and again i don't mean that negative it's just they're not no really known for being kind of tech savvy and and they wanted one and now their friends are starting so i was like wow this is really kind of hit the mainstream at least in in kind of my immediate kind of friends and family and i know some friends that have picked them up that aren't necessarily the most tech savvy either um so for me it's like it's already here and how do we want to kind of figure out how to use it or not use it right and and that's yeah that's kind of fascinating to me one thing you touched on that um i don't know if the listener caught you mentioned about 4d printing that to me 3d printing is always fascinating to me but the whole 4d printing thing fascinates me kind of even more what exactly is 4d printing well, I think we most people are probably familiar with um, with three D printing, so can mm-hmm. un, so can kind of understand that, understand what it's uh, what it's seeking to do. I mean, I think people don't necessarily understand the broader implications from uh, an economic and a manufacturing uh, and a service perspective. But we'll we'll park that for a second. Sure. Um, so four D printing uh, is uh, the creation, the use, the manufacture of materials that can change their pro- properties. So materials that can heal themselves sure. materials that can maybe um, let's take the take the um, uh, the example of um, a 4d printed heart valve okay. that can maybe change the way that it operates dependent upon different conditions within the body um, maybe we can think about 4d printed clothing that would maybe change its shape change its color uh, change its uh, change its uh, ability to to be more airy based upon the ambient temperature around you so this idea Idea sure. that materials can actually change their properties and there's a whole there's an incredible number of applications for this kind of technology from uh, road manufacture to clothing to healthcare sure. um, to uh, um, uh, fixing holes in things you know it, I mean it's just absolutely mind-boggling so we're starting to see some really fascinating work happening in in labs around the world um, about these materials about new materials that can really change their properties based on a number of different uh, of different conditions I, I think the thing there's two things that always kind of fascinate fasc- me that I've kind of read about in the last couple of years that aren't necessarily on the, the 4D printing kind of space, but one was where um, they figured out a way to basically, like if you get like a cavity in your tooth, that the tooth could like reheal itself because basically like, yep. well, your body grew them at one point, so like why not just regrow the hole, right? Like, And I was <laughs> like, oh, it makes a lot of sense. Like, uh, But I think that, I'm, I'm just trying to simplify it into something that people could probably understand, right? So if you don't have to go to the dentist to get your cavity filled anymore and you just take whatever or however they do it, um, you know, that's something that maybe the dentist can't provide anymore and they only do other more complicated procedures, right? Or I've also read something where, um, I think it was like Google was either working on or funding a company where they were basically building um, skin that could regrow itself and attach to your, your current skin. So for people with like, burns or like burn victims or or people with big scarring or or just you know you could fix this stuff and and nobody would know whether you had you know this kind of regrown kind of fake is kind of the wrong maybe word for it but you know what i'm getting at right so yeah yeah absolutely so you know you're you're beginning to outline then just just the 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 breadth of uh, of applications for the for this kind of technology 
I, I did want to take the, the opportunity just to touch on one thing that sure. you said there, that is really, really interesting. This idea that dentists all of a sudden might have to do more higher value work. I, I think this is this is an, an issue that's going to be replicated across pretty much every sector that we can think of. Sure. So one of the things that technology does, it commoditizes our products and services. So it's harder to, to differentiate. Now, we can see that increasingly, I think, in cars. Yeah. So t- traditionally, if you like, there's, there's been a kind of a particular brand of car that we might like. And we're particularly interested in that because the quality of the product is much better than others. But if we look at what's happening with the use of technology, that gap, I mean, there may be some brand equity there that still makes us prefer a, a BMW to a, to a Ford. Sure. But the actual quality of the product, the, you know, it, the, the gap is much narrower. So what technology forces us to do, I think, is to look at new value propositions is to look at what kind of services we may actually be able to wrap around those commoditized products uh, in order to differentiate ourselves from the competition. Now, we're also seeing that same thing happen in services, be it accounting, be it legal, um, and eventually I'm sure it, it will pop into consulting as well. So the more we commoditize services like products, the more we're going to have to think of new ways to create new value propositions sure. around those more commoditized services that, uh, um, that that we bring to market. So I think that kind of dentist example is just a really small nugget of how we're going to see the world change with the use of uh, with the use of technology sure no that's interesting so i'm curious to get your thoughts on something obviously you know back in kind of grade school we all learned about kind of how we went through the industrial revolution and obviously we didn't end up kind of giving a base kind of salary or or uh, income to to everybody and obviously it changed kind of the face of how our, our kind of world is today and it'll continue to evolve. And I kind of see this next maybe kind of, I think we're at the beginning of, of technology, kind of the technology boom or revolution or, or whatever, and it's already happening, but I think we're at the beginning. But I guess my question to you is, is we didn't, yes, we transitioned kind of from the industrial revolution and we didn't kind of start giving people a base salary. Do you see that the technology revolution, yeah, we're talking about this base salary thing again, but it'll just be similar in the sense that like some people will be out of work for a while, they might have to retrain, but they'll be back working and society will kind of continue on. Or is it kind of, is it different or the same? Or we don't know yet? Uh, I I, I suppose the one answer is we don't know yet. Okay. Um, the thing that concerns me is when I hear people saying, here comes the fourth industrial re- um, uh, revolution. The previous three industrial revolutions, sure. we had, much as you'd outlined there, technology that comes along, that changes a particular sector, that starts to spin out other sectors, uh, and we've continued to show increasing employment growth uh, as the population has continued to grow as well. Okay. Now, I think we're at a slightly different point in time. One of the things you could argue about the previous three industrial revolutions is reasonable isolation about the new technological advances that that, that were introduced. So whether it was a steam engine, whether it was electricity, whether it was sure. desktop computing, reasonable isolation. So there were kind of periods of, oh my God, look, everything's changing. And then it kind of settled down a bit. And then there was another uh, innovation and I'm using the singular quite deliberately there, and then it settled down again. 
But let's just think about what I think of as a possibility explosion from uh, all these exponential science and technology developments. Um, so we've spoken about some of them. So 3D and 4D printing, sure. um, nanotechnology and uh, autonomously, or, uh, autonomously precise manufacturing, AI, new computing architectures, uh, hyper-connected Internet of Humanity, um, immersive experiences, mixed reality living, virtual reality, um, for example, cryptocurrencies and blockchain, synthetic yeah. biology, human augmentation, new technologies transforming healthcare, brain uploading, robotics, drones, new ideas around energy, food chain transformation. So there's a whole bunch of things that we're seeing at the moment. And I'm not sure we've quite seen that range of technologies sure. Coming together at one time. So, so I don't think it's about AI in isolation, although it's obviously the technology that most people are talking about. But just start to imagine what AI could be like in in combination with blockchain. Yeah. Um, in combination with um, the use of um, autonomously precise manufacturing. I'll give you two examples of what of of um, of, of how I think how radical I think this could be one from the past so we used to have um, a, a quite big device that we sat in the home for making telephone calls and uh, we used to have quite big devices that we used to call computers sure um, and we used to think that when the telephone became a mobile telephone that that was quite game-changing but when we combined microcomputing with uh, uh, with telephones and we ended up with a smartphone actually that allowed us to work in new ways it allowed us to communicate in different ways it allowed us to take pictures to send text to send movies to consume that content in different ways and to work in different ways so that has really quite radicalized the way that we've worked and the way that we've socialized over the last uh, 10 to 15 years I said earlier on that uh, there was a for me there was a fascinating example around around 3d printing Sure. So I'll give a really specific example. Local Motors um, is, a, is a U.S. innovative company that 3D prints motor cars. Okay. Uh, it does that by printing uh, something. Uh, one of the models is called a Strati. It's got 50 parts. Wow. The average uh, family car has 5,000. Wow. So immediately we see actually um, the whole manufacturing process is very different. If we think about it at the, uh, the kind of comparison in the number of parts, you don't need the same uh, component supply chain sat behind it. Not only that, you can produce two and a half thousand cars in a, in a local motors 3D printed car plant and break even. If you want to produce a Ford, then you probably need 75,000 units to break even through that plant. Wow. Now, if you've then decide that you can manufacture locally, what does that do to logistics that currently supports the manufacturing great big global plants and the shipment of product all around the world? So your 3D printing uh, local motors car is challenging co current component manufacture and supply and it's also challenging the, uh, the logistics supply chains that sit behind that particular part of the business. Sure. The other thing that local motors have, have started to do is to combine 3D printing vehicle technology with artificial intelligence. And they've produced something called Ollie. Ollie is a 3D printed artificially intelligent autonomous minibus. Interesting. So you begin to see the potential when you bring some of these technologies together. I know we've always combined technologies in the plant. 
in the past. But I think those two examples with, with just one company really start to illustrate how fundamental new ways of manufacturing things with these new technologies could change not only those particular manufacturing sectors, but lots of related sectors around them. Yeah, that's actually quite interesting. I think we're, it's different than kind of the industrial revolutions we've had in the past. I think it's because, and this is obviously my opinion, is it's coming into every industry almost like at the same time or like months yeah. or years apart or has the potential to, right? And I think that's to me why it's different and, and yeah. kind of good or bad, right? And we won't know. It's just, it, it's kind of like how quick did you know, the phone, just like the smartphone change, basically business, right? And that's just like one small example, right? Well, it was a huge yeah, example, but it's, it's kind of like a, a huge sm change, small example. Yeah, there we go. That's how you put it. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So I, I'm curious, though, you've obviously written um, a lot of stuff on this, you talk about this all the time. What else should you know, we as kind of a society kind of be thinking about, um, you know, into the future? Well, I, I think it's actually quite easy to fall into the trap of thinking that what we have is a problem around technology and the way that we use technology. Okay. I actually think the real issue is societal. And one of the reasons I think that is First of all, we're going to have to change our idea of work, of the jobs that we do, the way that we work, uh, the impact that has on the economy and so forth. And if we look, and I think it was some, some Pew research from uh, 2014, 2015, looked at what uh, a whole bunch of experts thought would be the future for work through automation uh, and about half the people surveyed said uh, this looks a little bit like jobs armageddon and that uh, automation and new technology will take out more jobs than new technology puts back and therefore the risk is societal unrest societal breakdown um, and increasing polarization between have and have not the other half of the of the people that, that that took part in that research said, actually, I have faith that human uh, ingenuity um, will create jobs to offset those lost uh, that exist within existing uh, business uh, businesses and and through existing technologies. And the new businesses that are established through the use of some of these new technologies will actually take up that slack. But we need new areas of social systems like education and training in order to prepare people for these new roles, for these new way of working and for these new jobs. So whilst that says the jury's out on whether there will be jobs Armageddon or not, um, clearly there's agreement that there's a significant challenge for society to consider. Now, I, in, in kind of reinforcing that, I think from a business perspective, well, we're thinking, you know, what is the mindset change that we need to make? Because if I'm sat in my existing business, then I can always do what I've always done. Um, and that will always give me what I've always got, except increasingly, I don't think it will. So maybe I need to take a mindset that says, how do I create a new game? How do I do an, Air, uh, an Uber or an, or an Airbnb in order to really create a new game and change the nature of the marketplace that I'm operating in? 
I think the big challenge there is actually about how do I change then the organizational DNA? So if I'm sat in a really big um, existing, very successful multinational company, and we all know what happens with culture change in big organizations, how do we actually change uh, the way that we become more flexible, the way that we address the marketplace, the way that we take new propositions to, to market? Because that needs a fundamental change in organizational DNA, the way that we think, the way that we engage with our, our consumers. Um, and our customers. I think at the same time, we're seeing an increasingly complex outside world. And I think what we'll start to see is what, what, what we think of as wicked problems becoming the norm. So in the past, we've had this kind of specialist area, if you like, where we're not very certain about what's going to happen. We're not very certain about how we address some of the uh, problems and the opportunities. So we can kind of bring in some specialists now and again to think about how we resolve some of these wicked problems. Because actually, we've been able to agree on what we need to do because we can make sense of the problems because they're near in you know they might be a little bit tricky but there's a degree of certainty we you know we can see the trends we know how to handle them so these kind of tame problems which have been the norm in the past i think will increasingly become the 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 exception so this idea about how do we handle complexity how do we handle uncertainty becomes increasingly important and that feeds what i think of as a leadership challenge and this leadership challenge exists within organizations i think it exists within governments as well so how do we build mindsets and skills that allow us to, for example, co-create new offerings with colleagues, with partners and customers? And I think there's a new skill set there. And I think part of that new skill set includes things like how do we collaborate? How do we partner? How do we cope with complexity? How do we introduce a sense of curiosity? How do we accelerate our learning processes? Do we have enough of a tolerance of uncertainty and how do we make sense of the things that we're seeing can we use foresight and scenario thinking to help us develop these robust and flexible strategies but i think importantly how do we then think about introducing empathy into the organization because if we start to look at what's happened for businesses over the over recent history then maybe we've seen more masculine traits um, start to permeate what we do as a, as a business so how do we retain our strength how do we get stronger how do we grow how do we beat the competition quite kind of masculine perspectives but actually what we see going into the future is a need to be more collaborative in um, a need to be more empathetic with the people we're working with both our customers our partners as well as the employees within our business and um, what are the kind of skills that we need to think of if we need to develop relationships because commoditization of product and services has changed the nature of our value proposition and actually what we can bring that's of more value to our customers and clients is more about relationship, is more about understanding, is more about empathy. So I think these these things around mindset, uh, around a new way of addressing and thinking about the problems and issues that we're faced with, and this new leadership challenge make me think that actually it's a societal issue. And that kind of goes back to the points that I was making earlier on, which is as a society, how do we want some of these technologies to evolve and develop? How do we want them to be implemented? Who do we want to be responsible for them? Just because we can make a technology do something, should we allow it to do that? And, you know, and how do we think about some sense of global agreement about how these things happen so that we create a very human future rather than one that's uh, dominated by techos? No, I 100% I agree. It's interesting. I, I think the other thing that I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on, as we kind of get um, 
faster um, kind of internet or, or travel, whether, you know, I, I know I've read stuff where if we just basically, if they build some sort of like aircraft that, that leaves Earth's atmosphere and, and kind of um, comes back down, you can be on the other side of the globe, you know, within like an hour or two. Um, you mean like you, you mean you mean like the ideas put forward for the Lapcat aircraft, which would be powered by reaction engines, uh, dual rocket and air breathing jet engine? Yeah, like well, you know what I mean. Like there's a bunch of companies, right? Like they're actually yep. kind of working on this or, or multi-planetary, and some of this stuff sounds kind of really far-fetched. But I think a lot of this stuff is maybe like less than a decade or two away yeah, at, within our lifetime. And and the thing that I'm trying to get at, I guess, is. It, it would be completely fascinating if, you know, you're in, you know, the United Kingdom, but you say you work in L.A. or New York and you commute and literally you get up in the morning and you're in the U.K. and, and you end up in somewhere in America and then you go home at night. And it's that's just like a normal thing. Right. Like it, it th that's pretty far fetched, but it, it sounds like it's somewhat of a reality. And the point I'm trying to get at is. I don't really necessarily, the geographical borders has always kind of fascinated me. They don't really seem to make sense anymore. Um, and, I, and I guess my question to you is, is like, as we're growing as kind of a society and humanity and even kind of business, and you've kind of touched on this throughout the show, is I think like we need to be talking more as like a global community than as like these separate countries because we could potentially be living and working almost within hours of each other all over kind of the globe, potentially anyway. And yeah. you and I are in two different countries across an ocean right now. Like I'm in Canada, you're in the UK. And it's like we're sitting next to each other. Nobody has, nobody knows the difference where we are geographically located. Is it, there's, there's, there's a whole bunch of things swimming around my head now after after you'd said that. I suppose the, the one... The one thing I'd start with is that this idea that we can um, commute many thousands of miles in a reasonably short space of time used to exist before Concord was retired. Sure. Um, Interesting. So, yeah. We've already had so, it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and we know how that turned out. Yeah, sure. Um, but, but, but equally, we, you're right. We do see um, increasingly propulsion and, uh, and airframe technologies uh, that allow some of these super quick times where vehicles would just pop outside the atmosphere and then pop back in again on the other side of the world. So this idea that uh, increasingly fast air travel will be a part of the future is, is kind of one that's real and i agree with you in terms of the time frame it's really there now the example i mentioned reaction engines we have test bed for these engines the technology is being proven um, uh, and it's and it's bringing in national and regional funding uh, and we're seeing other examples of, of, of those across uh, across the us and, and japan particularly sure i think for me i, I would the other thing I'd say about kind of high speed travel as well is within areas like the US, maybe Hyperloop can be part of that yeah, mix as well. Interesting. So it's not just about the air. It's also about what we might do on the ground. The other thing that I think challenges some of those notions about some of those uh, flight technologies is how do they change the infrastructure that we might need for those? Sure. Uh, and we know how much infrastructure investment needed to happen just to cope with the um, Airbus A380 and its introduction for hub-to-hub -hub flight right. in terms of bigger air bridges and so on. So there's a big infrastructure thing potentially on, on some of these new, new uh, vehicle technologies. I think um, autonomous 
vehicles is another interesting thing. Um, there was a survey uh, that I saw, I think it was in Business Insider a while back, that said basically um, half of the airline pilots that were interviewed thought that their role could be overtaken by robots within 20 years. Sure. So um, as well as kind of speed, you've also got this issue about um, how aircraft would actually work. In parallel to that, we've got this whole bunch of new immersive technologies that actually ask us to question whether we need to travel. So at the moment, you and I, as you alluded to just now, don't need to travel to the UK or Canada in order for us to have this conversation. Uh, and that's a well-established uh, technology. Sure. But what about things like augmented and virtual reality? Yeah. How do they potentially change the way that we might interact? How about um, holographic technology? Does that change the way that we might come together uh, with a group of people in order to meet? What about increasingly the haptic technologies that allow us to also experience the physical, uh, the physical things about close contact with people that may be on the other side of the world? What about some of the technologies that potentially allow us to feel a hotel's bed linen, to taste the food that's available in the restaurant, to smell the fragrances that are in the bathroom before we actually leave home. Um, so there's a whole bunch of these kind of technologies that potentially travel our notion of needing to travel by fast air. I'm not saying they won't happen, but I'm saying that just the, 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 the competition between technologies and the way that we experience what technologies have given us in the past may change in the future. No, that's it's fascinating, right? You're you're right. The AI stuff, the the virtual reality stuff, you never know. And actually, um, there's a local kind of room here that they kind of uh, use VR and the and they basically put each other in virtual reality into their meeting room. And the other ones, um, it's in uh, Sweden. No, it doesn't matter. It's somewhere on um, Amsterdam. Sorry, it's in Amsterdam. Um, and they basically have a VR room there and we have a VR room here in Canada and they basically have these meetings in VR all the time. And that's kind of fascinating, right? Because what's to say, like, is it is it kind of the same as having me physically there if we're we're both kind of physically there in VR? Like, I, I don't know, but it's it's an interesting kind of dynamic, right? I th I, and I think there's a generational uh, thing that plays through this as well, and it probably plays through most of these of these technologies. So, uh, but I'm a baby boomer, so I use some of these technologies, but I mostly enjoy meeting people face to face, so that I can actually sure. see them in the flesh and so on. Um, if I'm a millennial, is that quite so essential as it is to a baby boomer? So if I'm working uh, as uh, as a as a new young person and, and not the older person I am at the moment um, uh, in, in business in 30 years time, is it essential for me to travel around the world to see someone if I can use holographic technologies to bring us both together in a virtual space? Yeah. Uh, it, yeah, we'll find out, the, I guess, right? <laughs> we were, yeah, I, I hope to be around to find out. Um, but, the, the, but the other thing that I wanted to pick up on is, is, is this kind of virtual reality, because I think some of these technolo technologies really challenge our perspective on what's real anyway. Sure. And is it okay to exist just in a virtual space as well as a real space? And one of the things that makes me say that is I'm sure most people will have heard of Second Life. Yeah. A few years ago at its peak, it's kind of on the wane a little bit, I think, now. Yeah. But a few years ago at its peak, the internal economy of Second Life, where people traded products for predominantly for, for, for leisure, but also there were kind of training applications in there as well. The value of the economy was 500 million US dollars. Yeah. 
That's now wild, that was right? people trading virtual products, services, property. Yep. And I think that's interesting because if there's that kind of interest uh, in having a life inside a virtual world, what's real anymore? <laughs> totally. Yeah, I 100% agree. It's it's wild, right? It's interesting. Yeah. But uh, Steve, we are coming to the end of the show. So let's close with where people can get more information about yourself, Fast Future Publishing, and all the books you we kind of talked about today. Sure. Well, first of all, there's our website, which is uh, fastfuturealloneword.com. Uh, you can get in touch with me at uh, on Twitter. I'm called uh, Informing Choice on Twitter. Um, uh, you can email me, Steve at fastfuturepublishing.com. Um, or, uh, or I'm sure if uh, if anyone wants to contact me via you, then uh, you know I'm, I'm happy for for you to pass on my details. Perfect, Steve. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Thanks very much indeed. Delighted Thanks, to be here. Thanks. Yeah. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for listening. To join the free community, buy some merch, sponsor the show, or sign up for the newsletter, please visit the website at buildingthefutureshow.com. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.